This is a YCF special. Welcome to your Church Friends Podcast. I am Chris. I hope all of you had a wonderful new year. Uh, for me, my family has been doing this tradition since I was a little kid. Uh, my dad would bring me, my brother and sister, and my mom together around like 11.45 every New Year's Eve, and we would get together and pray, and we wouldn't finish praying until it was a little after 12, so we would pray in what my dad called the new year. So as we've all gotten older, my brother and sister have uh, kids and are married, uh, we, we get the family together now and all of us together pray in the new year. So we just have a wonderful time. That's been our family tradition ever since I was little. So that's what we do for New Year's Eve. But like I said, I hope all of you had a wonderful new year. Uh, again, you can see I'm all alone. Murdoch is still on vacation. So I'm taking the opportunity just to record a few episodes about some stuff that I've really been wanting to talk about or just stuff that I really like. And last week we looked at Psalms 3. So this week we're going to look at Psalm chapter 1, and Psalm 1 is classified as a wisdom psalm. Unlike Psalm 3, which we covered in the last episode, that's more of a prayer psalm. So Psalm 1 is looked at as wisdom, like it's giving us advice on life, on how to live, and what's the right way to go. And so the breakdown for this, it breaks up into four sections. There's the way of the wicked, that's verse 1. The word of the Lord, that's verse 2. The prosperity found in God's word, that's verse 3. And then the judgment of the wicked, that's verse 4 through 6. So I think it's a great way to start the new year because it takes life down to only two options, the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. The placement of the psalm at the front of the book isn't an accident either. Uh, see, this concept of the righteous and the wicked will occur again and again and again throughout the collection of psalms. Uh, and I know we struggle with this because to think that there are only two options is really, really difficult for people nowadays. Uh, we, th we think there has to be another option. In our modern world, we don't like only two options. It feels cold. It's so black and white. But from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, there are only two options. It's either life in Christ or death apart from Christ. So as we read this book, the, the authors, they are uh, inviting us to read the entire book as, like I said earlier, a guide to life in God or a blessed life. So let me read it. Again, I'm going to be reading from the net translation uh, so you can follow along if you want. How blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the assembly of scoffers. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands. He meditates on his commands day and night. He is like a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at the proper time, and its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts. Not so with the wicked. Instead, they are like wind-driven chaff. For this reason, the wicked cannot withstand judgment, nor sinners join in the assembly of the godly. Certainly, the Lord guards the way of the godly, but the way of the wicked ends in destruction. So, the, the whole book of Psalms starts off with this word, the word blessed. Uh, and reading it, it should instantly take us to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus preached his ground-shaking message. I mean, it is his alternative to culture sermon. And we covered that sermon all throughout season one. There's 27 episodes, I believe, on it. You could go back and listen to all of them. They're, they're really great. I really love the interview I did with Mark Clark. That was a fantastic one that kind of summarized a lot of what we're talking about today. 
but you could go back and listen to those. Uh, but here he went over the culture of the time and said, it says this, but I say this. And he starts his, this sermon off with the word blessed. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemaker, etc. Uh, and this portion is often referred to as the Beatitudes by Christians today. And why is that? Why does this psalm and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount start with the word bless? Because at its simplest meaning, the word bless means happy or happiness, or in some ways, human flourishing. So out the gate, the question being asked of us is where does your happiness come from? It's been said that all of our motivation, our deepest motivations in life, come from our happiness. Every decision we make, every relationship that we're in, every friendship, the work that we do, it's all about your happiness. So what makes you happy? I think we tend to think that it's our stuff, status, or situation that makes us happy, or will make us think that we are blessed that I'm living a blessed life based on what I have. But I think that blessing or happiness is when you lived an obedient life and have a harmonious relationship with God. You see, stuff comes and goes, but if you have a relationship that is in harmony with God, then you stay in the same state of blessedness, no matter what you have, no matter what the circumstances, and no matter what your status is in life. So essentially, I will make the argument that blessed is being obedient to God. So when we are blessed or being blessed or, or blessings are coming down to us, it's not about the things that we have so much as much as it is that we're just being obedient to God. See, uh, I am blessed not because of what I have concerning the, the stuff that I have or what's going on in my life. I'm blessed because I have God. I'm blessed because I have a relationship with him. Uh, the world is constantly telling you to chase after your desires. Uh, and they would tell you to go after what you really desire and what you really want. I read this and I thought it was cool. It says, ours is the time in which those who have no room for God are ever ready and eager to offer advice to those who are living for God. The advice of the godless is all around. It crops up in personal conversations, in magazines, and newspaper articles, in movies and television shows. All of those and others, too, join their voices in the insistent, pounding cry, live like this. It's fun. You'll be glad you did it. And why is that? Because they will only promote the values of the worldly empire. Uh, I mean, think about it. Every single day, billions of dollars are being spent to tell you what to think about, to tell you how to be cool, uh, to tell you what sexuality is, uh, what it means to be a family. Uh, what forgiveness is, what it means to be a friend, uh, uh, how important money is, your body and work. And the world says, chase after that. It says, go after those things that you think will make you happy. Uh, let those things consume you. But God says, hey, you want to know what it is to be happy? All you have to do is be obedient to me and have a relationship with me. So let God be your desire. Uh, let God be what makes you happy. Chase after him, or as in the Beatitude says, hunger and thirst for him. All right, now check this out because I've never noticed this until I did the study for this podcast. Uh, the verse opens with blessed is the one. Uh, that's a singular person, right? That the blessed is the one, that's one person, one individual. And then it mentions the wicked, sinners, 
mockers slash scoffers, whichever your translation says. And that's a group of people in each one. So wicked is a group of people. Sinners is a group of people. Mockers or scoffers is a group of people. And the idea I see here, the way of righteousness is the road less traveled. It's not easy or popular at all. But the road of the wicked, well, there's a lot of people on that road. It's very easy and it's very popular. Uh, Jesus draws from this again when he's on the Sermon on the Mount preaching when he says, wide is the road that leads to destruction and many will walk through it, but narrow is the road that leads to life and only few find it. Uh, So this is telling us that the way of the righteous isn't easy. It requires sacrifice. Uh, That's denying yourself. It requires living for God. That's picking up your cross and it requires obedience. That's following him. And really, those are the steps to a life of a disciple of Christ. You deny yourself. You pick up your cross and you follow him. I actually have this tattooed on my forearm uh, because it's a reminder to me every day that I've got to deny myself. I got to deny me and denying me requires sacrifice. That means I don't chase after what I want. Uh, that I've got to live for God. That means picking up my cross. That's living for him and not me. Uh, And that it requires obedience. That's following him no matter where he leads me in life, no matter where I go, where I'm headed. It's following him completely. And this is the life that leads to happiness. The other roads may seem happy at first. It may seem pleasurable or desirable, but it ultimately leads to destruction and death. And I see the solutions or the pathway to righteousness being found in the knots. And why is that? Because we don't understand that the knots are there to prevent us from damaging our lives with wealth, money, fame, sex, drugs, pornography, greed, jealousy, and all the other vices. That's what the the knots are there for. Uh, And the knots here in this uh, chapter, in this uh, book, is does not follow the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sits in the assembly of scoffers. There's an interesting progression of regression here. It goes from moving to stationary to eventually sitting, and with each one, it becomes more intense. Another way to read it is like this. Sin is a temptation that you first try out, then you become accustomed to it, And finally, it becomes a habit or your lifestyle. And you notice, again, this progression of regression. Uh, You're moving from one state to another to finally, eventually, you're not even moving at all. And I really like the way that phrases it up to see uh, temptation is something, yeah, we first we try it out. You know, it's just like, hey, this doesn't seem that bad. But then you get accustomed to it. It's fine. It's become something that you're doing. It doesn't even bother you anymore. Yeah, it doesn't even change the fact or, or you don't even look at it as like it changes your relationship with God anymore, that it hurts that. You're just okay with doing it and eventually it becomes a habit or a lifestyle and you're just doing it. You don't even notice that you're doing it. And we need to understand that there are some things that God does not want us to do. And they're, they aren't there to shackle us, but to free us and allow us to have true happiness. I think a lot of times we think that the do nots are the the restrictions and the rules, and God doesn't want us to have fun. But really, he's intending for us to have a blessed life, and that only comes from following those rules. So when he puts a, a hard stop on, let's say, um, chasing after money, uh, it's because he knows that if we chase after money, we're never satisfied with what we have. We're constantly wanting to do that. So his rules and restrictions for money aren't uh, to not have money but to be generous with our money because out of our generosity, uh, we show our true reflection of him. 
And that's what they're there for. Because that when we give, that brings us more happiness and joy than holding on to what we have or going after more. Or honestly, that the pursuit of going for something, you never really feel like you have enough. I mean, think about apps on your phone. They're constantly, they're all achievement-based. And they're constantly telling us to go for the next level, go for the next thing, go for the next thing and get that next reward. And we're never satisfied with where we're at. And, and that's really uh, this progression. It's moving to stationary to sitting and eventually you're just uh, consumed by it that that's all you want. And it's far from the truth that God's rules, uh, they shackle us. Uh, that, that's so far from the truth. The reality is that the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers are shackled by their sins and it is that their sins, uh, they govern or drive their lives. In an attempt to chase after what makes them happy, they are never really happy and they're never really satisfied. Uh, G.K. Chesterton says this, and I love it. It's a great quote. It says, don't ever take a fence down until you know why it's put up. And I think that's something we need to understand with why God says don't do these things. Uh, never take down those fences uh, until you know why he's put them up. What are the barriers? What are they preventing you from? And another way to think about it is that the righteous will avoid thinking like, behaving like, and dealing with the wicked. And I love the way that kind of sums up this portion of the verse. Uh, this isn't about avoiding all contact with people lost in the world, but it's saying don't let your life be saturated by theirs. So verse 2, instead he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands. He meditates on his commands day and night. And here the author of Psalms 1 found direction from God's word. And it wasn't a chore to him. He didn't see it as like, oh, I've got to do this in order to make God happy. Oh, I've got to do this. Uh, it's not like my kids when I tell them, hey, go clean your room. And they're like, oh, I got to go do this thing. Uh, what he's saying here is that uh, God's words, God's law, God's rules, uh, that they're not a chore to his life. In fact, it brings him delight that those things he finds pleasure in them, that they satisfy, that they meet that need inside of him and fill that void. In fact, God's words were such a delight to them, and he found so much pleasure in them, in them that he wanted to meditate on them day and night. Uh, that word meditation means murmur or reading aloud or pondering. Uh, so really, do you delight in God's words? Do you take pleasure in God's laws? Do you delight in it so much that it now defines everything about your life, that, that there's a change in your life? on all levels, and that it changes not you, but what you want to do. Warren Wiersbe says this on his commentary on verse 2, uh, Their mind is controlled by the Word of God. Because of this, they are led by the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. It means understanding the Word, chewing on it, and applying it to our lives, making it a part of the inner person, like chewing on God's Word, and making it a part of you that when you're actually doing it, it doesn't feel like you're doing it because you have to, but it's almost like it now is you and is your nature. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. And when you're walking around on the road and when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as a symbol on your hand and bind them on your forehead. Write them down on the door frames of your houses, on your gates. Now, there's so much in this verse 
or in these verses that I could get into, especially about that binding them on your forehead and how that is the counter to the mark of the beast and how uh, John kind of pulls from this verse to talk about the mark of the beast. But I don't got time to go down that rabbit hole. So we're going to have to save that for another episode. But what I really want to get into is where it says, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk on the road and when you lie down. It's almost the opposite of what this psalm is saying about what to do with the wicked, right? It's instead of uh, standing with the wicked and walking with the wicked and sitting with the wicked, uh, it's saying walk with God's word. Uh, Talk about God's word when you're sitting down and at home and when you lie down and when you get up. Like constantly have God's laws in your life uh, and delight in them so much. Verse 3 is, He is like a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at the proper time. Its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts. Uh, In the housing market, they have a saying. It's all about location, location, location. And this verse is the same. This tree is planted by the source of its nourishment. Uh, It is planted at the right location, the only place that would provide the resources it needs for it to grow. So at the proper time, it produces the fruits it needs. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8 says, "Uh, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He is like a tree planted by the waters that sends out its roots towards the streams. It does not fear when the heat comes, and its leaves are always green. It does not weary in the years of drought, and it does not cease to produce fruit. And again, do you notice the location that this tree is planted by? Uh, The illustration is by uh, the streams of water. But Jeremiah kind of gives us a glimpse into it before that. He says, blessed, again, happy, right? Happy is the man who trusts in the Lord and who is confident in him. Uh, This tree is planted into God as its resource, and there it is planted so that it will produce fruit. Uh, But there it's planted in God and trusting him to nourish him during the heat of the day, uh, during the droughts that come. It doesn't weary, it's not afraid, because it is uh, planted by the source. It is in the right location. Uh, So for us as Christians, we need to plant ourselves in God, in who he is, and what he's all about, in his character, in his name, And we need to trust him. That's what builds our confidence that when things come that maybe it seems too hot or when the drought is there, uh, we know we're not worried. We have no fear because we're there with our God. Uh, What fruit should we be producing? It's not the fruitfulness of things or material wealth. It's not producing uh, little fruits of me or you. It's about producing the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, that's what should be growing in abundance out of our lives as Christians. That should be uh, what's producing out of us. We should be producing love. Uh, we should be producing joy, uh, peace, and patience, and kindness, and all of those things. And we need ourselves to be rooted in obedience. Because we need to understand there could be no fruit without the roots. Warren Wiersbe again says this, Too many Christians are more concerned about the leaves and the fruit than they are the roots. But the roots are the most important part. Unless Christians spend daily time in prayer and the word and allow the spirit to feed them, they will wither and die. And here he's saying it again. It's all about the roots. Where the roots draw from, where they get their their nourishment from, uh, that's what's going to make sure the tree produces and that it doesn't wither and die. Uh, So let's address the elephant in the room with verse 3. Uh, and uh, he succeeds in everything he attempts. Uh, So what we really need to do is flip our definition of 
success or prosperous uh, because it's not about what you're going to have. It's not about that you're going to live forever. It's not about everything going well. Uh, honestly, it's about none of those things. Uh, it, it is if you follow God's ways, then you're going to prosper instead of perish. Uh, so there's only two options in life, prosper or perish. And, and prosper means so much more than the material things. Uh, but if God blesses you with material things, then you have to be a good steward about it. So uh, let me share this story. I heard uh, a pastor uh, preach on this, and he shared this, and I thought this is really a good illustration of what prosperous means. He says, a preacher once said, this week at my church, two missionaries who were in Africa, 86 years old and 79-year-old, uh, two women who had given their life to Jesus. They never got married. Uh, they served the people in Africa their whole life. Their brakes gave way in their car, and they flew over the mountain into eternity and died. Some people look at this and say, what a tragedy. But I say to you, that's not a tragedy. You know what a tragedy is? He opened up a Reader's Digest and read a story about two people, 55 years old, who retired and moved to Florida, got a 30-foot boat, and collected she sells for the rest of their life on the beach. He then said, friends, that's a tragedy because they're going to stand before God one day and God will say, what did you do with your life? And they will say, seashells. You see, a tragedy is living your whole life and not understanding what God has for you. And the real tragedy is not doing it. See, I don't believe we as Christians are called to that kind of prosper life. That life where we think it's all about success or fame or what we have. That's not prosperous and that isn't success in the view of God. If you really think about it, look at the disciples. All of them but one were executed. And it wasn't uh, that they didn't try to execute John. It's just that when they did, he didn't die. So they banished him, in, uh, banished him to an island. See, those people are defined by success. Even if we look at someone like David who was successful as king, he went through years of heartache and trouble. Daniel, one of the most uh, Christ-like figures in the Bible, was living in a foreign land as a servant to a king that had conquered and destroyed his home. But these are the successful people in the Bible. And if we even look at our own Savior, he was homeless and, and traveled around with 12 guys. His own family, while he was alive, rejected him. People called him crazy. They, told, they insulted him and said, uh, you don't know who your father is? And he died on a cross. But that was success by God's definition. And why is that? Because all of these people were doing what God had asked them to do where they were at. And it's not about the task or the role that they had. It wasn't that David was king, that that's what God had asked them to do. It was being obedient. And yeah, when like someone like David messed up, what did he do? He repented and he went back to being obedient. But that is true success. True success is living a life in full obedience to God. It doesn't mean that I'm going to have it all. It just means that I have my God. All right, verse 4 through 5. Uh, the word wicked here describes a person who is not in a covenant relationship with God. So basically the word wicked here is someone who says they don't have a relationship with God. But... Uh, but one who lives the way they want to, and they're chasing after their own passions. Now, uh, they may be a kind person. They may do things for charity. Uh, they could be what is called a good person. But God's evaluation of them is that they are without him. Uh, as one commentator has said, God sees but two persons in this world, the godly who are in Christ and the ungodly who are in Adam. 
uh, the psalmist kind of compares them too to like chaff, that they're the worthless husk of the grain that blows away in the wind. This could mean that the wicked lack the internal fortitude to endure difficult times. And this made me think that maybe it's because they have no real hope. As followers of Christ, when things go bad, uh, we have God. Uh, he is our anchor and he is our hope. And we have who he is and what he's done, right? But uh, the people who don't have a relationship with God, when things go bad, they're just blown away by everything because uh, they aren't anchored to anything. They're not anchored to the hope of our creator. Uh, they may have an anchor, let's say, in their finances, but that could get easily get snagged and taken away. They could have an anchor in a relationship, but that could end. They could have an anger in a job, in a situation, what have you. All the things in life, all those things that uh, we covered in verse 1 about chasing after, that, that's where they put their anchor in, but there's no stability in those things, and those things could be easily blown away. But we have hope in our God, and because of that, we anchor into Him. Uh, looking at verse 5 too, we can see that judgment is also coming for them. And it reminded me of this in Matthew uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. And it says, I baptize you. So I believe this is John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And it even says it. I, I really like the way the net translation translated. It says it this way, and it made me understand that it's saying that they will not stand in judgment, and that's meaning uh, they will not be able to stop it when it comes. And to me, I read this, and I don't celebrate. It really breaks my heart that this will be their fate. And when I do read this, I think that, man, I need to get on it when it comes to spreading the gospel of Jesus, because if I don't, then this is the fate of people I know and the people around me. And I don't want this for anyone. But it's because the ungodly are lost, uh, because they refuse sometimes to submit to Christ and his word, that they prefer the counsel of the world and what it says about prosperity and success. And they spend their day thinking about sin, and they think they are secure in this earth, that this psalmist is saying that they are only chaff and that they will be blown away and their eventual destruction, their eventual uh, destination is judgment that leads them away from the one thing they were pursuing all along, happiness. All right, verse 6, the final verse of this one, uh, it says, God watches over them. The, the righteous aren't distinguished by their own actions, but by the Lord, and he watches over them. Uh, what hope and happiness is it knowing that the God of the heavens, the God of creations is watching over me and you? And to me, that's so awesome to think about that God is watching over me. Everything I do in life and everything I go through, he is there watching me. Uh, I, I feel like a sense of security in that. It's kind of like uh, our chickens. I, I notice that when I'm out there watching over them, they feel a little more confident and calm about what's happening. But if I kind of move away and they sense a predator like a hawk, they all freeze up and they're afraid and they don't know what to do. Uh, but if I go out there, they feel calm because they know I'm there to protect them from any predator or harm that's coming their way. And now that we have Bear, our dog, uh, he's the new shepherd of the house and he shepherds our chickens. And even when he's out there, um, sometimes they don't like it because he's trying to put them away back into their coop. But uh, when he's out there, again, they feel this sense of security. And that's what it is knowing that our God is watching us, that we feel secure, that we feel 
uh, loved and that we feel protected. It's also a warning. Uh, Murdoch likes to say it this way. Yeah, God is watching you all the time, right? So it's also not, I guess, not so much of a warning, but just a reminder that God is always watching us, always watching us. (laughs) Uh, So really, this is all about what you do with your life. How do you walk and, and how do you actually live? And the warning is don't be a Christian atheist. See, a Christian atheist is someone who believes in God, but doesn't live like it. In fact, uh, I'm saying it the nice way. You know what James says? Uh, James says this is demon faith. Uh, You could believe in God. You know what? The demons believe in God. They they actually know God. They know who Jesus is, uh, but they don't live like it. So if you know who God is, if you're going to church on Sunday and, and telling people you're a Christian, but you're not living like it, really what you have is demon faith. Really what you are is a Christian atheist. It's not until God's word changes you. And like this psalm says, it becomes a delight in your heart and you want to obey it, not out of a chore or a task, but because you just willingly do that you become a follower of Christ or part of God's kingdom. The final warning is if Christians start listening to the counsel, advice, or plans of the ungodly, they will soon be standing in their way of life. And finally, we'll sit right down and agree with them. So uh, that's all I got for Psalms 1. Uh, next week, uh, me and Murdoch are back with Forgotten Books of the Bible. Uh, I believe we're going to be covering Zephaniah. That is a fun one in uh, a fun book. So if you can, go ahead and read it ahead of time. But I am Chris. I am your church friend. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.